Welcome to episode 86 of the Historic Performance Podcast, featuring Scott Saulwasser, Director of Speed and Development at Texas Tech University. In today's podcast, I chat with Scott, who's uh, one of the rising names in athletic speed development at the university level. I came across his work after reading an article that he wrote on JustFlySports.com, which I'm going to be linking in the show notes. And the title of that was Optimizing Sprint and Jump Training Based on Individual Force Velocity Profiling. I would highly recommend that you check that article out. After chatting on the phone with Scott last week, who's currently training four individuals for their pro day, which is uh, coming up on March 31st, which is this coming Friday, Scott informed me that he had been using the two iOS apps created by Dr. Carlos Barcelobre, who was on episode 77 of this podcast. And the two specific applications that he utilized for force velocity profiling was my sprint and my jump. And then taking that information, he individualized the training programs for all four athletes. And within this podcast, that's what we cover specifically, how he went about individualizing it. What were some of the commonalities that he saw in the force velocity profiling? And what were the end results of the programming, as well as reflection on what he would do differently for next year? Overall, fantastic podcast. Hope all of you guys enjoy it. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Story Performance Podcast. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Scott Saulwasser. Scott, how are you doing over there? I'm doing excellent, James. How are you? I'm doing really well. Pleasure having you on the podcast. It was great uh, chatting with you on the phone last week. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Scott, to start us off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you ended up in strength and conditioning and what you currently do? Right. So I played college football at a school called UC Davis. And uh, I actually, when I was there, I was a English major. I actually wanted to be a writer. And uh, that was my plan. But Playing college football and the preparation aspect of the offseason, getting my body in shape, getting myself ready to perform at a high level, fell in love with it. So once I graduated, I kind of shifted course. I was lucky enough to, after graduation, have the opportunity to complete a, a year-long internship with the Oakland Raiders at the professional uh, NFL football level. And then after that, I, I was hooked. So I knew I needed to get my... Uh, master's degree in a, a related field since my bachelor's degree had been um, in something slightly different. So I went to Sacramento State University. I was a graduate assistant initially, got my master's degree in kinesiology. While I did that, I competed in Olympic weightlifting. Following my graduation from the grad program, I got hired as a full-time assistant there. I was there for a couple years. From there, I went to Louisiana Lafayette University, coached there for roughly two to three years, um, left there, and actually went to a place called Sparta Performance Science, which kind of plays into a lot of the topics we're going to be talking about today, and was really my first exposure to force plates and uh, movement signatures and uh, movement profiling, so forth and so on. I was there for a little over a year and then went to the University of California, Cal Berkeley, for four years. And I'm currently at Texas Tech University. Um, as the director of speed and power development, 
working exclusively with the football program down here. So before we get to today's topics, I'm actually going to throw in a, a little question there. Uh, you mentioned that you were a English major and then you ended yes. up getting a master's degree. I realized that you need a master's degree in a related field. Well, um, mm-hmm. When making that transition, did you have to take any prereq courses before applying to the master's? I did, yeah. So my program was a two-year program, but I actually it actually ended up taking me about three years. For that exact reason, I had to take uh, about a year's worth of prereqs in order to get into the grad program. However, I will say my experience in English and communications certainly helped me along the way, even in, in the science realm because of my ability to communicate. You know, I know in grad school, a lot of people struggled writing their thesis or, or writing papers, uh, research papers, so forth and so on. And that's one thing that always came easy to me and I felt was a strength of mine. And now certainly in the coaching profession, the ability to express myself, communicate um, in a variety of different ways I actually feel like that background significantly helped me along the way. It's funny that you mentioned that because my my actual bachelor's degree was also in an unrelated field. My my bachelor's degree was in history, which I'm not even sure a lot of people know about, but uh, it, it's helped me in, in many ways as well, especially when it comes to data analytics side, which is a area that I'm personally interested in and just right. the structure of history and looking at documentation and then trying to formulate a thesis off of that and understanding the the research process has helped out a ton. Absolutely. Scott, I know that you wrote uh, an article uh, recently, and it was uh, regarding force velocity profiling. Right. Could you give us an overview? What what exactly is uh, force velocity profiling? Right. So um, as I mentioned, my initial background or kind of exposure to Movement profiling came at Sparta, where we pretty much individualized each athlete's program based off of force plate testing. Basically, the the force plate gave us each athlete's unique application of force. So here, I don't have the luxury of utilizing a force plate, so um, I used two different apps, um, my jump and my sprint, to try to piece together some of the same data, but. Uh, force velocity profiling is just exactly that, looking at each athlete's unique way of moving. So the analogy I always like to give is people's handwriting, right? We all, you know, we, we all use the same alphabet, the same letters, the same words, but it all looks slightly different because we all have different handwriting. So the same thing is true of athletes. Um, obviously, athletes will move differently from sport to sport, but even within a sport, within a position, you've got guys moving slightly differently. Everybody's an individual, and um, the way specifically in, in my realm, in the public sector, we're so crunched for time now that you can't really afford to guess. You really have to know what each athlete ne- athlete needs and give them exactly what they need and, and not what they don't need so that you can maximize the, the little bit of time we actually have with the athletes that's exclusively devoted to physical preparation. A couple of episodes back, I had Dr. Carlos Barcelobre on, on, on the podcast, and he specifically talked about the, the apps that he created. But how did you come about my jump and my sprint? Um, you know, um, JB Marin is a big influence of mine. I've followed uh, a lot of his work and been in conversation with him for a little while now. And um, just kind of 
following the crumbs, so to speak, um, reading research papers, reading you know articles and, and blog posts and stuff, and looking for ways um, in lieu of a force plate to be able to to get some of that uh, to get some of that data. So that's kind of how I stumbled across those apps. Um, I, I should also mention when I was at Cal, I actually had the luxury of a force plate as well. So I do have experience kind of profiling in the public sector, which I'm in now, um, previously with a force plate and now trying to do a lot of those same things with, with the two apps that you mentioned. Right now you're done a lot of this profiling with some of the football players that are going to be on their pro day in order to help individualize some some of their training but right. uh logistically how did you go about doing that i mean football teams texas tech i'm sure is fairly right. large so how right. do you go about doing yeah. this in a time efficient manner right so um the team itself has roughly 100 athletes so with the pro day guys it's a smaller population obviously it's it's pretty easy to do those guys and to be honest with the team um, I haven't gotten to the point where I've profiled every single athlete. I'm brainstorming ways to do that for our summer phase of training. But right now, I've basically profiled what you would call maybe some of our high-profile targets. Um, some of our uh, premier players are, are guys that basically have the greatest effect on, on wins and losses for our team. Those are the guys that I've been able to profile up to this point and kind of really been able to dial in and individualize um, their programming, make adjustments, et cetera, to our, our general training template. We're definitely in discussion as to uh, possibly taking it team-wide for our next phase of training in the summer. For those of the listeners that have never used my jump or my sprint, what is the testing process like in order to get that unique profile? And then what type of information does it does it give you? It's actually uh, fairly user friendly. Um, it's not that difficult. My my jump has a variety of different tests. The force velocity profiling simply consists of a, n a number of squat jumps with a variety of different loads. Um, so I did uh, body weight, 20% body weight, 40% body weight, 60% body weight, and 80% body weight, which is what they recommended, getting five different data points. And, and I also did the reactive strength index test that exists on there as well, which I find to be fairly valuable as well. So those are the two tests that I did on my jump. And then the my sprint um, is a fairly elaborate setup. But once you get set up, it's pretty user friendly. You can run guys through pretty quick. It's just a matter of setting up um, markers at specific distances to account for the angle that the camera is at. So once you have those markers set up and the camera's the correct distance away, et cetera, you can, uh, it's simply just filming somebody sprinting over the, over the entire course and then marking when they pass certain markers. And then a lot of the equations um, that you would run yourself are already in the app. So it makes it just quicker and, and easier. It's, it's stuff, stuff that you could possibly do on your own, uh, crunch the numbers, but it's just kind of prepackaged and uh, a lot simpler to run a number of guys through. And then the jumps is just filming the jumps. You film the jumps, mark the takeoff, mark the landing, and uh, obviously, it runs the data based off of uh, ground time and air time. So um, that's basically, uh, in a nutshell, 
how the apps work. What kind of information does the interface give you, though, after you've run the, the test? You know, what, what is it feeding back to you? I know you mentioned that it has those uh, equations already built into it. So it's just popping out the data. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the, the my jump, uh, it's basically giving you your force velocity curve. So it, uh, the my jump actually has a theoretical optimal force velocity profile that will yield the highest vertical jump. And so it compares the athlete's actual data to the theoretical optimal data and will deem you as either being force deficient or velocity deficient. And based off of that, you can potentially individualize the athlete's program as needing force or needing velocity. And and obviously, we can talk about a number of different ways to do that. And then the my sprint gives you force, velocity, acceleration, um, the, the typical data that you would expect. However, the real value in it and what I really used to make adjustments to the programming is the horizontal force, um, what they call RF or ratio of force. Basically, uh, what, what proportion of the force is directed horizontally versus vertically and then what they call a DRF or decrease in the ratio of force, basically how quickly the athlete loses horizontal force application in favor of vertical, basically how quickly they bail on acceleration, which obviously will dictate ultimately the speed that they're capable of reaching because they're able to accelerate longer. So those are kind of the pieces of information um, that I focused in on. For my jump, you mentioned that you you like the reactive strife index uh, portion of it. Why, why do you like the RSI? So basically what I did there was I looked at the reactive strength index and I looked at the athlete's ground time and then I looked at the athlete's air time kind of separately. So it, it'll give you an RSI. It'll say obviously 1.5 or 2.0 and, and that's well and good. But what the most important part to me is how how the athlete achieved that rating. So I know if he's 1.5, obviously I know he needs to get better at reactive strength, but specifically what piece of the reactive strength. So then I go in and I look at the reactive strength index. Okay, he's a 1.5. I know he needs to get better. And then I look at his air time and then I look at his ground time. So I know that it is a drop jump or depth jump. So in my mind, I know I need to be below or I personally strive to be below 0.3 seconds of ground contact time. And if they're above that, then I deem them to be deficient in stiffness. So we'll work on things like drop jumps or stiffness jumps, working on getting off the ground faster. If they are sufficient, sufficiently short in ground contact time, so maybe they're 0.25 or so, which obviously would put them in the fast stretch shortening cycle category where I want them to be on that particular exercise, then I work on simply increasing their airtime. So I would do a depth jump to an overhead target, maybe a vertex, maybe over a hurdle, maybe onto a high box, and tell them to focus on obviously rebounding off the ground, but at that point focusing on increasing output. So that would be one example of the same reactive strength score, taking, but taking it two different ways depending on what the athlete's deficient in. And it's the same thing with the my sprint. You could get two athletes that run the same time, say two guys that both run a 4-4-40, but they accomplish it two completely different ways. Maybe uh, they run the exact same time, 
one guy might actually achieve a higher velocity than the other athlete, but possibly they ran the same time because one athlete's start was poor, uh, maybe their horizontal force application was poor, but over the course of the entire race, they built up enough momentum and actually reached a higher velocity. Well, we know, obviously, same time, two different things the athlete needs to work on. And, th and that's really the beauty of the profiling for me is um, digging in and figuring out, okay, more than just a specific score, what caused that score? Okay, this athlete jumped 36 inches, but if I want to get him to 38 inches, what is he deficient at? What do I need to improve? These two athletes, they ran the same time, but I can see they're moving differently. What does he need versus the other athlete? And that, to me, again, is really the beauty and, and um, what appeals to me of a profiling format. Before we start discussing a little bit more about how you go about individualizing the training for, for those pro day guys, you mentioned that you have a, a general template that you start out with. So typically, how long do you have to train uh, these football players for pro day? And then what, what does the general template uh, more or less look like the framework of it. Right. So obviously training someone for pro day or the combine is going to look pretty significantly different from your typical, how I would train the regular football team. Obviously a, a lot of the qualities are going to be the same. Both of them need to have rate of force development. Both of them need to have speed development. Both of them need to, to a certain extent, have absolute strength development. However, the sport of football or any sport really has significantly more requirements than simply a combine setting. You've got to worry about work capacity. You've got to worry about special strength for that specific position. What does their position do versus other positions on the field? When we're talking about a combine setting, it's almost more it's 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 almost more similar to training a sprinter or a jumper in track and field. You basically have the answers to the test. All right. Instead of all of these different things that we need to be good at, we're not sure which ones are gonna be the most important on any given day, like you have in, in a chaotic kind of sport environment. In a combine environment, you have the answers to the test. So you know, okay. We have to be good at these jumps. We have to be good at this sprint of this distance and these these agility drills. And so you train you train specifically towards that. So long story short, I begin with the profiling. So I know if an athlete is force deficient or velocity deficient, and then I go about addressing their strength program based off of their jump profiling. The athletes needing force will spend more time working on, as I mentioned in my article, things like starting strength, things like explosive strength, rate of force development, basically the ability to suddenly and explosively produce force. And then the, the velocity needing athletes would work on things uh, requiring a greater range of motion, force over a greater range of motion, finishing movement, uh, peak velocity, carrying momentum, so forth and so on. But to more directly answer your question, once I have that profile, the, the actual template for specifically for the pro day, for the combine, we basically trained five days a week, well, really six days a week, but five days a week geared specifically towards the combine testing. Three days a week were linear speed and two days a week were change of direction speed. Now, obviously, that's a lot of high intensity work. I addressed that 
by keeping the exposures pretty brief on each day. You know, on a speed day, we may have two to four high quality or, or, or max effort reps at the most six. And then on the change of direction day, something similar. As far as weights, uh, we lifted lower body on the linear speed days and upper body on the change of direction days. Early on in the cycle, we focused more on absolute strength and, and general strength qualities, squatting, deadlifting, Olympic lifts, generally building a bigger engine. And then as we progressed closer and closer to the actual pro day, we've uh, kind of dialed in or shifted our emphasis more towards special movements or movements that were geared specifically towards improving a certain component of the movement skill, whether it be acceleration, whether it be vertical jump, broad jump, change of direction. And, and that's kind of my philosophy for the, for the team as well. Build a big engine and then take that increased output and dial it in through more targeted, more specific movements. Um, and then on the sixth sixth day, they did position work, work towards obviously the skill drills that they're going to be taking, that the, the scouts and the coaches are going to take them through as well. I went short to long, obviously, on the speed work because, again, my focus early on being on, on general strength, um, higher intensity, heavier loads maybe a higher volume of, of heavily weighted movements lended itself better to shorter distances uh, of speed work, 10s, 20s. Obviously, that's the portion of the race that has the greatest correlation with your heavier weighted movements. So that worked out well. And also, obviously, there's got to be a give and take volume-wise. So um, with the, the higher weight room volume, it allowed me to have less volume out on the track or out on the field. And now that we've built up towards longer, high-intensity sprints, higher movement volume, obviously the, the weight room volume has taken a back seat, not as much heavy loading, uh, significantly less volume, and more what you would call special strength movements, um, uh, working on specific components or, or areas of need that I've identified in the athlete. Scott, now that you gave us a general overview of what the template looks like or the way that you go about programming generally for the pro day guys, could you give us a little bit more information about um, how, how many pro day guys you're, you're, you're dealing with and uh, their positions? Right. So the specific population that I'm talking about in regards to this pro day is four uh, different individuals who ironically all tested as force deficient, even though they play a variety of different positions. Two of them are what we consider big skill athletes. So a tight end and a linebacker, your traditional weight room warriors, big squatters, uh, big cleaners, big deadlifters. And then the other two are skill athletes, more wiry, more slide of build, your typical skill athlete. But ironically, even though they move differently and look differently, they all tested as being force deficient. And I have several theories as to why that might be. So let's expand upon that. What are the theories that you have in terms of why all four are tested force deficient? Right. So um, initially, the two big skill guys, as I mentioned, on general parameters of Force output, general strength parameters, they're outstanding. So one might think, well, they're already strong. That doesn't make sense. They 
why do they need force? I thought force was just get them stronger, right? And and that's kind of been my whole point is that there's many, uh, many other aspects to improving force production outside of simply let's get stronger. That's only one strength quality. That's absolute strength. As I mentioned earlier, there's starting strength, explosive strength, accelerative strength, and things of that nature that all go into one's ability to produce force particularly in an athletic movement, um, such as a vertical jump or a sprint. However, um, specifically in terms of these guys, one area that I particularly noticed them to be deficient in that, in my opinion, contributes to their need for force. And, and this is kind of, these guys are actually good examples of this. When I was working with force plates, I noticed in the force time curve, a lot of times um, athletes that tested as deficient in, in force um, had a trough or kind of divot or dip in the middle of their force time curve um, where force would uh, leak out, so to speak. Imagine a hose with a hole in it. No matter how much water or water pressure you've got, if there's a hole, force leaks out, water leaks out. Um, and, and that would be the trunk. No matter how strong an athlete is, if they don't have the necessary trunk stiffness in order to transfer the force from the lower body to the upper extremities and vice versa, they're going to have a hole or a leak in their hose. So that's one area where I really um, went to work with them in terms of um, their ability to stiffen the trunk and transfer force. So on uh, basic movements like anti-rotation, um, payoff presses, weighted carries, suitcase carries, barbell rollouts, anti-extension movements, things of that nature, uh, along with more traditional movements such as deadlifts, trap bar deadlifts, etc., in order to work on having a stiff trunk able to transfer that force, um, and also movements that force them to activate and produce concentric force rapidly, a high rate of force development concentrically, specifically um, starting strength, so seated box jumps, exercises where they weren't able to use momentum, where they weren't where they didn't have a long uh, period of time to display force. Remember, these guys are, are guys that were strong in terms of absolute strength. So when you give them a large window of time, they can produce a lot of force. But what we needed to work on was their suddenness, their ability to produce force rapidly and suddenly, specifically um, at the very onset of movement. So like you would in a sprint start or, or the very bottom of a vertical jump. So um, that's how those athletes, uh, that's why those athletes needed force. God, I'm actually glad that we're on this topic because on the face of it, if you looked at the force velocity profile of all four athletes and you saw that they're force efficient, as you mentioned, you would immediately think, well, I just need to work on the absolute strength for all four. But um, even here where they're all force efficient, there's, there's differences as to why that is the case. So you talked about uh, the weight room roarers and, you know, they're, they're fairly strong, but now you have some of those skill guys, those two wide receivers that may not have the same numbers in the weight room. So how did you go about attacking that problem? Um, so certainly part of it was, um, early on some heavy loading, um, again, because of the speed volumes that, that, uh, are in place later on in the program, we have to kind of back off of the the heavy loading after a while. But one thing that that is uh, kind of crucial as well is with the sprinting, the skill component. It's such a skilled movement 
that those receiver athletes actually, when you look at their strength relative to body weight, was actually decent. But what was terrible was their, as I mentioned, the ratio of force and, and the DRF, the decrease of ratio of force. They knew how to run upright, but they struggled to accelerate simply because they weren't producing force horizontally. So in addition to um, the general movements early on of, of heavy loading, what I found to be extremely valuable, both in terms of quantifiable data, as well as in terms of theoretically in my head it made sense, as well as the feedback from the athletes, was sled work. And, and I know specifically lately uh, heavier sleds have started to become in vogue. Uh, but uh, I found that to be extremely successful with them, probably a little bit due to the, the heavy loading and getting sort of a strength stimulus from it. But what I found extremely beneficial was the technical potentiation that came out of it, getting them to feel the forward lean, getting them to feel the push mechanics rather than the spin mechanics and getting them to slow them down and get them in a position to where they can push, they can lean, and I can coach, and we can get repetitions in, in that rich learning environment. I found with those guys the sled work to be extremely beneficial, and early on it was was 80% body weight, relatively heavy, and later on we began contrasting the heavier sleds with the lighter sleds, and obviously, finally, heavier sled, lighter sled, and unweighted, trying to get some of the body positions and the mechanics to carry over as the resistance decreased to try to continue to do the same the same things technically uh, with the same aggression in order to produce horizontal force uh, in an unweighted fashion. So that's one method that I found to be really valuable with those skill position athletes got a quick follow-up question on that uh what what made you choose uh, 80 percent of body weight for that heavy loading of uh for sled i believe it was matt cross's study out of new zealand but again i'm a big fan of jb marin's work and uh, him and matt cross and and that group have done a lot of research lately with the heavier sleds and i wanted to give it a try um in in my mind i've always theoretically been attracted to the heavier sleds mainly because it doesn't straddle the line between strength and skill. It's clearly a strength movement. Now, it's a strength movement that has high transfer to a skill, but it allows us to focus in on the force component and not blur the line. I, I think sometimes, just in my experiment, experience, when you get really light with the sled, it's it's not enough resistance to really uh, get much of a strength adaptation, but yet it's enough resistance to be just awkward enough to disrupt the technique. So you kind of really get the worst of both worlds. And, and that's nothing against that. There's, I use light sleds, and, and obviously some of the greatest to ever do it have used light sleds, but that's what I do like about the heavier sleds is that we're not blurring the line. We're clearly saying, okay, yes, the, the, these are the components of the technique that we're going to emphasize, the lean, the push, um, low heel recovery, uh, complete extension, so forth and so on, but, but we're not straddling the line. We're clearly picking a side and focusing on the force component, specifically the horizontal force component. The Texas Tech Pro Day hasn't happened yet. 
It's going to occur this Friday, March 31st. This week, you ran your final testing when it came to my sprint. What were the results and what did you learn from it? That's an excellent question. Interestingly enough, as we mentioned, so all force deficient athletes, um, even though they move differently, that means that they needed different things, right? So as we talked about, I trained them um, slightly differently geared towards their individual needs. However, um, when we tested, obviously in the end, we're trying to improve the same qualities. We're trying to make them better force producers. Um, even though the means and the methods might be slightly different. And we're trying to, since we're talking about sprinting, improve horizontal force. Probably the best example, um, one of my workout warriors, as you mentioned. So um, over the distance uh, that we test on my sprint, which is 30 meters, he actually, believe it or not, improved five tenths, which may sound ridiculous. And obviously, keep in mind, when we tested initially, he was probably, you know, he, he possibly, who knows what he had been doing it had been a month or so since the season ended. So obviously, he's in reality, he started from a better spot than that. But from our first my sprint test until now, he improved by five tenths over 30 meters, which is tremendous. But really, to me, the valuable aspect and the whole point of why we test in the first place is why did that happen? What did we do to cause that? That's the whole point of profiling, figuring out what a guy needs, why he needs it. And then going back and saying, okay, did my treatment work? What did it improve? And was it effective? Well, clearly it was effective, but why was it effective? So basically when I go back in and look, so one of the measurements is force relative to body weight. So newtons per kilogram is what it's measured in. And he improved um, by almost three newtons per kilogram over his initial testing, which is obviously tremendous. You do the math, he weighs about 100 kilos, slightly over 100 kilos, that's a tremendous amount of force that he's producing beyond what he was producing initially. But more importantly, when you look at his uh, RF and DRF, which, uh, as I mentioned, is his ratio of horizontal force, and then how long he's able to continue to produce horiz primarily horizontal force before um, ditching it in favor of vertical, he had an almost 10% increase in his RF. So not, as a, not only is he producing three newtons per kilogram more of force, he's directing it 10% um, more horizontally than he was in his initial testing, which obviously is tremendous. And then um, one of my skill athletes um, improved two tenths, which may not sound as impressive. However, you have to keep in mind that he was starting from an already um, very fast speed. These Both of them were already very fast athletes. And I saw um, similar results there. Improve in speed, uh, obviously improve in acceleration as evidenced by the ultimate test, which is he improved his time, which is what they care about. But again, what I care about is why that happened. And I saw similar results. Um, two, almost three newtons per kilogram improvement in force relative to body weight. And he improved his RF or ratio of force up to 66% which compares very favorably with an elite or sub-elite level sprinter. They're up around 70%, um, and, and most athletes are nowhere near that. So, And he started out at below 60. So obviously, in addition to just getting these athletes, giving them a bigger engine, improving their overall force capabilities, which I mentioned I like to do through general strength means, um, specifically improving their ability to direct that force horizontally to me, has been the game changer in, in improving their, their speed 
and improving their acceleration times. Got now that things have come to an end in terms of this year's preparation, I'm sure that you're now thinking about next year's preparation and pro day. From all the information that you've been able to garner using apps like My Sprint and My Jump, what were what would be things that you do differently in the future in terms of your programming? Yeah, I, I would. Uh, I wish I would have stuck with heavier general loading parameters a little bit longer because as as i laid out in my template there is a lot of there's high intensity components basically every day so i was very cautious both in terms of dosage obviously uh, uh but also in terms of in terms of reciprocity of of the different components i made sure that we weren't going to fry ourselves on any particular day so being so cautious i think i bailed on the heavy general loading uh, a little sooner than i otherwise would have uh partially because of the speed volumes that we started to get into doing speed work three times a week now um, I should say that one of the days was starts, so it was timed tens, and one of the days was typically flying sprints, flying tens, flying twenties, and and there was really only one day of of full out thirty forty meter thirty forty yard sprints, um, and and again that was after weeks of progressing to that we started out really short, so I was as smart as I could be. Um, with the exposures. But looking back, I do think we switched maybe over to the specific strength and the special strength a little too early. I think we could have benefited from another week or two of of heavy general loading, just building the engine um, a little bit bigger before getting overly specific. Um, that would be the one thing that going back, I would have done a little bit differently. But I do think it is better to err on the side of caution. The last thing I wanted to do was have guys tight or sore from the weight work. And then that's compromising um, the real emphasis, which is the movement skills. Scott, I, I actually have another question based off of what you just said. You're on, on the American football side. Um, how did you go about learning uh, how to fix running mechanics, how to go about improving it, what to look for? Right. So um, I've got kind of two answers to that question. For, first, to directly answer your question, um, research, reading everything I could about everything. I think Charlie Francis obviously has been a, a huge influence. So early in my career, I read basically everything I could get my hands on from him of his works. Um, and obviously, he's he's deceased now, but I, I have basically everything he's ever put together and then early on being a part of his forums and to this day him complimenting me on his forum back in the day is one of the <laughs> biggest compliments I've gotten in this profession so so that and then more recently Exos uh, does an excellent job with their their video series and their and their continuing education I got their XPS certification and I think uh, Nick Winkleman I know he's moved on from there now and he's now with Irish rugby but I think some of the work that he's done with the the coaching eye and cueing side of things is is just brilliant and so I think Exos and, and Nick Winkleman a lot of their work on prioritization of coaching cues and coaching hierarchies that that was a big influence on me in terms of uh, acquiring knowledge of how to exactly correct sprint mechanics and then in terms of how we actually go about doing that in a large group setting, uh, we have 
one day a week that I call speed school. And, and obviously we address movement skills more than just one day a week, but there is one day a week that's devoted specifically to what you and I are talking about right now. And we call it speed school. And um, what it consists of is there's two sides of getting faster. Number one, there's the technical side and, and where you have to be coached and you have to get feedback and you have to do drills and you've got to improve uh, certain components of speed. And then the other side of it is obviously running fast. So how we get the best of both worlds in a manageable environment with a hundred or so athletes on the field at one time is I assign, and we have a staff of uh, five coaches specifically geared towards football and um, my specific role being in charge of the speed development, um, I assign each coach a position group of roughly 20 to 25 athletes. So there's roughly four groups of 25 athletes out there, and they go through a series of stations, each lasting about six to seven minutes long, working on certain components uh, or themes that we want to address in that technical model. So if we're working on acceleration, there might be um, a, a station where we're working on a start stance, uh, first three steps technique. Um, there might be a wall drill station where we're working on, on a, a variety of different wall drills. There uh, might be a sled station where we're working on what you and I talked about, uh, the benefits of the, the heavier sled loading. And, you know, then there might be a horizontal plyometric station where we're working on that explosive power in a horizontal direction. Um, but in that smaller environment with, with one specific targeted goal of that station, we're able to actually coach the athletes. Because when you just have 100 athletes running, it's tough to really get sticky with your coaching cues. So we're able to actually coach the athletes on specific components. Um, and, and we're always trying to tie that back into uh, the speed work that we're going to do that day. So then after the stations, I've set up a track and field heat format. And so again, let's use the number 100. There might be 10 groups of 10 athletes. Heat one is my 10 fastest athletes. Heat 10 is my 10 slowest athletes. And we compete, we race. And that's how I get the high intensity stimulus out of them, how do you get an athlete to run as fast as they can? Well, you either stand there with a stopwatch or a laser, which uh, is what I do with the pro day athletes. But with the numbers we have out there with the entire team, it's not always practical. What's the other way? You get them to compete. So we uh, <clears throat> get them in their heats or, or their groups and they race. And every heat, there's a winner and there's a loser. And over the course of the day, we might run six to eight reps of a variety of different, usually acceleration distances, 20 yards, 30 yards, uh, sometimes up to, up to 40 yards, and they race. And if you win your heat, you move up to the next group next time. And if you lose your heat, you move down. So they're kind of always jockeying for position. And then at the end of the offseason, I name the fastest man in Texas and he gets some sort of prize and, and he gets to do a victory lap and, and he get he gets a title belt. 
etc. So it's kind of a way of getting them to compete, but also on our end, giving us the opportunity to get high output sprinting combined with opportunities to coach the athletes as well. That sounds awesome, Scott. I actually have a question that it may actually sound a bit weird to you, but throughout your entire coaching career, have you ever run into an instance where perhaps one of the football coaches were like, no, we don't want the these athletes sprinting during practice because um, you're exposing them to possibly a hamstring tear? And if, and if that ever happened, uh, did you how did you deal with it? Absolutely. Uh, and it's kind of the funny it, it's kind of funny how scared of soft t- tissue injuries everyone is everyone is when you think about it we're we're all scared we're scared to run 40s but we're willing to have the athlete run 40 yards full speed for the first time holding a ball with other guys chasing him now which sounds more dangerous to you right so i always found it kind of ironic that that's kind of in in this country and in in um, our specific environment that coaches are scared of that. But I think if you educate them one and, and have results, and that's the big thing is, is you have to have results, then, then usually they come around, explain your side and, and, and show them results, show them your lack of hamstring injuries. Um, knock on wood, we've been very, very successful. And I attribute it in part to smart work in the weight room, working eccentric hamstring strength, working um, glute strength, posterior chain. I attribute it to coaching running mechanics uh, because every step has a cost. And if you take thousands of steps and they're all wrong, that's a pretty steep cost that your body's going to pay. So I attribute it to coaching up the mechanics. I attribute it to smart load management, trying to make sure that everything complements that all pieces of the program complement each other. Um, and then finally, I attribute it to actually exposing these athletes to high velocities. That's that You can't replicate maximum velocity sprinting with any weight exercise or any other exercise for that matter at all. So obviously, you've got to be smart with your volume, smart with your load management, uh, uh, smart with your stress management, but you do have to expose them to those velocities, both for adaptation to try to get them faster, but also that's that's the best injury prevention there is, is getting them to dip their toe in the water and expose them to that in a controlled environment before they get exposed to those velocities in an uncontrolled environment. God, I know that we could probably go on and on and on uh, talking in this podcast, and I, I would love to have you on later on, maybe talk about stress management, load management, how you go about actually... Uh, trading 100 guys since today we really focus on the combine right i want to transition to a a little section that i guess we could term getting to know scott Sawasser. so first question for you favorite strength and conditioning book and why wow so i don't know if it's my favorite but i will say that i look at super training kind of the way i look at the bible i've i've read both of them cover to cover once in my life. And I may not ever read either one cover to cover again, but it's something that I'm glad I did. Um, I think obviously super training is a classic and it's got every, everything that every guru now and forever bases a lot of their stuff on. Uh, so I, I do think that every coach at some point in their career should read it. They would benefit from that. But, um, uh, I think what I call super training light, 
um, science and practice of strength training, um, Zatziorski and Kramer, a lot of the same ideas that are in super training. And so somebody that maybe doesn't have the wherewithal or the patience to read super training, uh, I tell them to read that. It's got a lot of the same ideas. Um, and specifically for me, probably my favorite, I think Charlie Francis was a genius. And, and I define genius as somebody that um, takes extremely complex concepts and explains them in a very simple manner. And to me, that was his brilliance. Um, it got me as a young coach, not, not having the knowledge and, and, uh, that I do now to understand some of the concepts that I still use to this day. So basically anything, specifically probably key concepts elite, um, because that's a comprehensive look at his work, but really anything from Charlie Francis, I would say. I was laughing because super training is, uh, quite dense as you said. So, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not sure I would probably read it cover to cover again. Uh, favorite quote and you're being a history guy um, you'll appreciate um, I'm a bit of a history buff myself so I I like uh, war history um, and uh, completely aside from politics I just like autobiographies and biographies and and specifically war history and and probably my favorite quote that just comes springs to the top of my head is from General Patton I'm a soldier I fight where I'm told and I win where I fight uh, th- that's kind of the mentality that I, I try to instill in my athletes is, is be coachable, do what you're told and do what you're told to just the complete utmost of your ability. You know, wh- wh- wherever you go, whatever you do, win at that. And then when you move on to something else, win at that too. Um, and obviously Patton's got a, a ton of quotes and, and there's numerous quotes, but that's one that I, time and time again have kind of thought to myself and, and kind of chuckled and says that and, and said that kind of sums up um, a lot of my mentality towards sport. Next question. Uh, favorite non-strength and conditioning book? So any topic. Right. So um, I consider a lot of the non-hard science stuff, maybe um, interpersonal communication, uh, pedagogy, coaching, cueing, et cetera. Um, I, I kind of put that under the umbrella of strength and conditioning. Um, so kind of a more fun way to answer this question would be to go away from anything kind of related to the job. Um, I mentioned, I really enjoy autobiographies and, and history as well, but uh, I'm going to go with probably the only work of fiction, uh, outside of uh, things related to my job that I've read anytime recently. Uh, obviously, back in the day as an English major, I read everything under the sun. But but recently, uh, World War Z, believe it or not, uh, randomly uh, was a book that I just happened to read. And I don't ever really read fiction, um, but uh, it really uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I'm going to say World War Z. This one's going to be a bit of a fun question. Your favorite movie? Gladiator. I don't even need to to think twice about that one. Gladiator is uh, is incredible on on so many levels, and um, to this day, at the end, I, I continue to get choked up, and and my wife always <clears throat> gives me crap because she's like, "You didn't get choked up on our wedding day, but uh, you get choked up at the end of Gladiator." But uh, that that's without a doubt my uh, favorite mo- all time movie. Uh, so on a, on a more serious note. Best piece of advice ever given to you, either by a coach, 
or mentor and why was it so impactful? Right. Well, very early on in my career as a GA, uh, when I was at Sacramento State University, uh, I had the fortune of working for uh, Gary Uribe is his name. He was my first mentor and and my mentor to this day. And uh, I was at Sacramento State. It was my first uh, paid job. Uh, I had been an intern with the Raiders. Now I was uh, getting my tuition and and a small stipend monthly, and I was working for Gary. And uh, he had come from USC, which at the time, this was the mid-2000s, they were on top of the football world. They had just won uh, a couple national championships. So obviously uh, it was... I was looking forward to working for him, and uh, he told me, and and obviously let me preface this by saying, obviously you always have to do a, a good job where you're at. You know, stay, be where your feet are at is a good is is another good quote. So uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't uh, love where you're at and do the best job you are where you're at, but what he told me was, and, and no offense to Sac State, he he was like, this is this isn't Sac State, this is USC. We're not going to coach like we're at Sac State. We're going to coach like we're at USC because they had just won the national championship. It was the premier program in college football. And he told me, if you can coach at that level here, you can step into any program in the country and coach at that level. So basically the gist of it was do the best job you can where you're at, but coach as if you're coaching for something bigger, you know, work as if you're working for your end goal. And so I, I keep that in mind to this day whenever I'm, you know, fatigued or, or, and we all have those days, I think like, okay, I'm going to show up and I'm going to be the coach that I envision myself being, uh, uh, you know, as part of my end goal. And, and even General Patton, um, you know, famously in, in his book talked about being, being an actor to some extent, you know, we all have our insecurities or our fears or we're tired some days, but when you're in front of the men, you're invincible. Um, and, and that was one thing I took away like, okay, well, I'm going to bring it every day and I'm going to, every day I can put on the coach that, that I want to be and work, um, for something bigger than, than what I'm currently doing. Scott, if anybody wants to reach out to you about anything you said on the podcast, What's the best way they can do so? I would say probably uh, email me. Um, my personal email is salwasser, S-A-L-W-A-S-S-E-R 68 at gmail.com. But also on social media, you can follow me at TTU underscore Coach Sal would be another good way to follow me on, on social media. Awesome. I'll make sure to link both in the show notes, which are on my website. Fantastic. Scott, really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on the podcast and talk about how you train the combine guys, talk about force velocity profiling, and just give some uh, concrete examples of why you went about doing things the way you did. I think it's only going to be helpful to everyone listening to this podcast. So uh, very grateful. Absolutely. My pleasure. Hopefully I did it justice. As you said, we could talk about this all day. But uh, hopefully people can take something away from this. And, and if they want to delve into it deeper, by all means, reach out to me and, and we can talk about it. Definitely. Have, have a great rest of the evening, Scott. You too, James. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Historic Performance Podcast. I greatly appreciate those who have taken the time recently to leave a review or rating on iTunes. Uh, big shout out to Coach Jay Hudgens. 
for leaving a review on March 22nd, 2017. Thank you for the feedback. I greatly appreciate it. And also thank you to Chris Difford. As I have mentioned, if you enjoy the podcast, please make sure to head over to iTunes to either leave a review or rating. It doesn't take that long and it helps other sport performance coaches and sports scientists learn about this podcast. Thank you so much in advance and I'll see you guys next week.